Hiring a physician assistant is a cost-effective way to improve patient satisfaction, expand a practice, improve efficiency, and increase patient access to care. A PA in the office can also free up physician time and improve your bottom line. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, your host, and with me today is Roderick Hooker, physician assistant with the Department of Veterans Affairs and co-author of a new book on PAs, Physician Assistant Policy and Practice. Rod is both a clinical PA and a PhD in health policy, and today we're discussing the economics of PA employment. Hi, Rod. Welcome to Reach MD. Thanks, Lisa. Rod, let's start with a brief history of the introduction of the physician assistant and what was happening in American society that opened the doors to this type of practitioner. Well, I think it was a convergence of a number of social events that were occurring. Since World War II, the demise of the general practitioner, the four-year medical school educated doctor with maybe one year of internship had gone into smaller communities, but gradually after the Korean War, it looked like more specialization was taking place, so less doctors were becoming GPs, and they were frequently less attracted to rural areas. Consequently, there was a maldistribution of doctors. Underserved areas were particularly hungry for doctors, and various observers over time had observed that the doctor of the GP as well as other doctors could really benefit by having some sort of an assistant that could help offload some of the services that they had been providing. This had been observed anecdotally under a number of areas around the country, and many of these leaders thought that the time was ripe to perhaps introduce an assistant to the primary care doctor. It wasn't primary care at that time. Uh, Hospitals were growing under the Hill-Burton Act, and there were many ideas that were percolating along at this time in the 60s to suggest that maybe a movement was afoot. Well, the role of the PA has changed over the years, and it continues to evolve. PAs used to fill the underserved medical needs of society. What role do the PAs fill today? The role that they fulfill is access to care, probably more than any other. Now, access to care is a vague term, but so is what is the full range of medical services by doctors and other health specialists. So I think that if we can think in terms of a Venn diagram, that the domain of a primary care doctor might be a square and the PA might be a circle that fits more or less in this square, we can say that the PA is helping to provide similar care as the doctor in many areas. Well, the PA role grew its roots in primary care medicine, and now the majority of PAs work in specialties. Can you tell us why primary care is such a good fit for a physician assistant? Well, basically because they've been trained in the primary care general medicine role, and primary care has a strong need for increased first contact services. Many of the activities in primary care, we'll take family medicine as an example, are broad, multi-specialty, multi-procedural, and the PA seems to fit this role quite well. I don't think that they are 
leaving primary care because primary care is not satisfactory. I think they're leaving primary care because the market is providing more opportunities in non-primary care. Well, let's talk about a PA working in a primary care practice. How has the primary care office changed with the addition of physician assistants? I don't know that it has. I think that, to some extent, the private primary care office has only been modified. We don't find as many family medicine docs as we think there are employing PAs or nurse practitioners to that extent, with the exception in the federally qualified primary care centers such as community health centers and rural health clinics. So we might find 20% of family medicine employing a PA or an MP in the private sector, but almost 100% in the public sector. And there, I think, is where we find some models that haven't been well described but are quite dramatic. It's in these community health centers and rural health clinics where the primary care service by a PA or an MP is as much as 30% of the total contribution. Has there been any research showing the value of the PA in primary care? Yes, quite so. There's a number of economic studies that have been done. When I was at Kaiser Permanente, we looked at an episode of care by a PA looking at uh, certain conditions. We don't know much about chronic disease management other than that increasingly PAs are used in chronic disease management, and that's a big part, anywhere between 30 and 60% of a primary care practice. But clearly, PAs are well-suited to offload many of the longitudinal care needed in chronic disease management, such as diabetes or arthritis management or hypertension that the doctor has already initiated. So if I own a primary care practice, why should I hire a PA? Well, I don't know that you should. It all depends on the infrastructure of your clinic. If you are working 80 hours a week and you don't care for that demand of your time, then probably a a PA would be a good employer. But I've met doctors who only work four days a week and are quite content to work a 30-hour week. And so I'm not sure that they would necessarily benefit. But if, as most practices are, not meeting the demand for their services, then I think increased access availability and offsetting some of the workload can be easily accomplished by employing a PA. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and I'm speaking with Roderick Hooker, physician assistant and co-author of a new book on PAs, Physician Assistant Policy and Practice. And today we're discussing the economics of PA employment. So, Rod, what factors should someone consider when hiring a PA? Well, my short answer is emotional maturity. We can train most people to do the things that we do on a daily basis. I think it's the maturity of the individual and their ability to be able to communicate with people is fundamental when employing a PA. Certain procedural skills are important and certain knowledge about medicine is important. But again, I emphasize the ability to be able to communicate is probably fundamental. All right, well, let's spend some time talking about the economics of PA employment. Can you kind of break down for us 
how you measure productivity and the cost effectiveness and the things that all fall under the economics of a PA in a practice? Well, first of all, there are some theories in labor economics about substitution and task transfer. When there is a high demand for one type of worker and this demand outstrips supply for long periods, usually a lesser trained one will arrive to take the place and to help take up the slack. This occurred among German brewmeisters and European masons, and it certainly occurs throughout healthcare. There are over 200 types of medical and health-related occupations just in the United States alone. But in the Civil War, there was only one, a doctor. So this growth has been phenomenal and almost exponential. So any factor that improves the productivity of any type of an operation by improving the revenue stream, I think, should be considered. Then that could be a receptionist, a nurse, or a PA. When I visit private practices in Australia, they don't employ a receptionist or a nurse. It's just the doctor and the patient. But if the doctor wants to offload some of that services, he or she can employ a nurse or a receptionist to keep the flow moving. So I think that the value of the productivity of a PA compared to that of a doctor is one of labor costs and helping to offload some of the workload. And what about the cost effectiveness of a PA? Generally speaking, let's compare a PA in family medicine with that of a doctor. For the last 20 years, the cost of a PA compared to the doctor is about 45%. But what is not understood in that is that the PA returns anywhere between two and a half and three times their salary in insurance revenue. So from that, as a employment investment standpoint, PAs are generally quite productive and almost more so than any other employee. Can you talk about the attitudes towards physician assistants and how does bringing a PA into a practice affect the other physicians, nurse practitioners, and more importantly, the patients? Well, the attitudes have changed dramatically in the last 40 years. For those PAs who started over 30 years ago, they know that they can recall that they had an uphill battle trying to explain what a PA is, both to doctors as well as patients. But nowadays, physician assistant is almost a household word. They are well-known. We know that from certain surveys. And sometimes PAs are even selected preferentially over a doctor in a situation where there's a choice. So I don't know how I can really address the attitudes towards PAs other than that the literature shows remarkable change just over the last three decades in attitudes going from skepticism to pretty much endorsement. Virtually every postgraduate trained doctor in the United States has had exposure at least to a PA or a nurse practitioner sometime in their training. Let's shift away from the practice perspective and discuss the PA profession. What factors influence the decision for someone to become a PA? Well, in this economy, it has some benefit in that it's probably safe and has a good compensation package. Also, is highly attractive to people 
who like to work with people. I think that you'll be well rewarded. It's intellectually stimulating. It has a certain element of procedure associated with it, which certain clinicians like. And it's an occupation that is in high demand, where the supply lags behind that demand by at least 25%. And so I think it will always be viewed, or at least viewed for the next 20 years, as an occupation that will be generally both job-satisfying and career-satisfying. How competitive is the application process right now for PAs? Well, we have some idea about this. For the most part, for well-qualified applicants, there are at least twice as many applicants as seats. And maybe for all applicants, there are three times as many applicants as seats available. If you want to stay in one particular region of the country, for example, Texas or Pennsylvania or California or New York, there is a very high selection of PA programs to choose from. So, Rod, the PA profession is still relatively young and growing. What can PAs do to help continue that growth and the understanding of the profession? We currently lack a widely recognized or commonly accepted methodology for understanding the capacity or estimate of the PA workforce need. Clearly, human health resource research and analytically focused justifiable models are needed. The PA profession suffers a great deal for lack of research, understanding what are the needs, demands, how the PA can contribute to the team approach to medical care management, how they can improve the quality of American society. I don't know that I can give you a straightforward answer, but I do believe that PAs contribute a social good to American society and that they improve the outcomes of care and they are more likely to improve access to care in rural and underserved areas. Well, on that note, Rod, I'd like to say that I've been recording the PA profession since 2007 and your name comes up often. You've made enormous contributions to the PA profession and to the future of the PA profession, the United States and the world. And uh, I thank you for that. I love being a PA. And Lisa, thank you. This was very enjoyable. I'm PA Lisa DeAndre Linnell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. And you can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And thanks for listening.